Over the next couple of weeks, so today and next week, and maybe the week after, we're going to be talking about doctrine. Doctrine uh, in the household of God. Two weeks ago, I gave a fairly sweeping introduction uh, to this letter that we call 1 or 1st Timothy. It was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Uh, Timothy, a young man with an upset tummy, uh, who's been given the enormous task of leading and correcting the church in Ephesus. And in the middle of the letter, this is what Paul writes. We we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, He gives this purpose statement, uh, very plainly and helpfully for us 2,000 years later. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And at least two things come to our attention in this. One, this is going to be an immensely practical book. Paul's writing so you may know how one ought to behave. It's about doing. It's about putting into practice. And as we uh, read together over the next few weeks, we'll find more practicality and less theology than appears in a lot of other of Paul's writings. Uh, But the second beautiful thing we saw in this, and we'll be reminded of again and again, is that Paul offers a definition uh, or a kind of a, a spin on how we ought to think of the church. The church, he says, is the household of God. Church is like a family. And both those things, um, I think, are really powerful things that, that appeal, in all likelihood, to a modern audience. There's practicality. You know, we all want to see that anything we learn matters, uh, that there's a payoff in real life. If we're going to spend time learning a thing or filling our head with a thing, we want to know that it's going to get us somewhere. Uh, and the second thing is, is the idea that church done right should look and feel and behave more like a family uh, with strong, authentic, relational ties, more like a family than like an institution or a company or a machine. And then as we come to our first couple of weeks, we start talking about doctrine, which to a modern audience feels like the opposite of these things. It doesn't feel practical, I suspect, to many people, certainly young people, I still think of I'm young, right? Uh, uh, and, um, and, uh, and it doesn't feel relational. Doctrine sounds like theory, like an intellectual exercise, like something you might do in a classroom without necessarily having an obvious practical payoff. And, and nor does doctrine sound relational, uh, like the kind of thing a family would get up to on a weekend, for example. But as Paul dives into this practical letter, it is doctrine where he begins. Uh, And the importance of sound doctrine is a theme he continues to revisit, not only in this letter, in other letters as well, but it it is front and centre in 1 uh, 1 Timothy. And although I said this is one of the less theological writings of Paul, more practical than theological, he does garnish the letter with sprinklings of rich theological truth and doctrinal statements and even creeds and confessions throughout. Uh, And uh, you'll probably get a better picture of that as you read it, and you'll read this practical stream of, you know, you ought to do this, you must put a stop to that, this is how things ought to be. And then he'll, it's like he pauses and goes into almost poetry as he uh, almost recites something that reads and feels like a doctrinal statement that he learnt by heart somewhere along the line. So I'll, I'll point them out as we, as we come to them and, and, the, and there's one in particular we're going to continue uh, to revisit. So today we're looking at, uh, we're going to look at what doctrine is 
and why it's important. And next week, we're going to look at a couple of the ways uh, that doctrine can go wrong, particularly uh, riffing off uh, this letter to Timothy. Uh, The next week after that, we might move on to other things or depending how things unfold, we might stay in doctrine for a little while because I'm feeling like there's a bit to unpack here. And and it is such a strong theme throughout the book. Uh, I feel a responsibility to do it justice. But today, here's our theme today. Doctrine, uh, doctrine's definition, doctrine's place, its purpose and its practice. So first, doctrine's definition. What do we mean by the word doctrine? Well, this is... I've cobbled this together, right? Um, but this, I think, is a, is a good start uh, as a working definition of doctrine, at least in this context. The authoritative, authoritative often codified... Teachings, truths, principles about God found in the Bible. It's the stuff about God in the Bible. Uh, it's authoritative and it's often codified. And I'll explain that, what I mean by that. Uh, look, I, I looked up a couple of different resources uh, for definitions. Each one goes something like this. Now, doctrine is the set of beliefs or teachings of a group like a religion or a political party. Uh, in the Christian context, I think this is a, a, a better way to sort of pin it down. Uh, it's certainly in your dictionary, it doesn't sound very householdy. Uh, it sounds very institutionalised. It's a, it's a religion or a political party or, or a club or a group. Uh, they might not... Um, but I would suggest that any and every ordered household will have their own set of distinctive beliefs and practices. Now, you might not in your family number them or codify them or spell them out in a spreadsheet... You might, but you probably don't. Uh, But you will have in your own home the lived convictions and principles of your distinct family. Uh, It comes out glaringly when you get married. Uh, You discover that different families value different things and now we need to try to make a new one. Or when you wade into social media and you discover that every view that you feel is really uncontroversial is aggressively despised by someone else. You know, everyone's got their own set, and, and often homes and families do. Uh, th- there's a beautiful statement in, in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua, uh, and it's spoken by Joshua. Uh, Joshua is the one who takes over after Moses as they're heading into the Promised Land. And Joshua says this, this is like a, almost a creedal statement for his family. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you might decide the same thing for your family. Or you might use that same sort of force, that creedal sort of force, to say different things of your family. Like, as for me and my house, we're a sporting family. Now, our kids do sport. Or, on the flip side, our kids do music. You must learn the piano for umpteen years through primary school. Uh, Or you might say, you know, we have an open house policy in this home. Or you might say, we're a very private people and we like to stick to ourselves. Families have their own flavours and, and you could almost write them down in a doctrinal sort of, sort of statement. Uh, and all of these distinctives, by the way, play out in practice. So doctrine, you can see, or, or you know, your beliefs, your principles, they do have a, a practical payoff. They're going to influence the way you live. If you read 1 Timothy uh, in the ESV translation, he appears four times uh, in, in the whole of the letter. But the first one is in verse 3, which we read today, which is why we're dealing with this subject first. 
Uh, the Greek word, though, that's behind that translation choice of, you know, sometimes it's doctrine, other times it's teaching. And, and it appears 11 times throughout the space of, you know, a pretty short book. So four times it's doctrine, seven times it's teaching, which is a funny, um, when you think about uh, doctrine in terms of teaching, that's a funny kind of turnaround uh, from how your English dictionary defines the word doctrine. They talk about it as beliefs. Uh, in Scripture, it really comes across more as a teaching. And there is a sort of a subtle difference between the beliefs and the teachings. Uh, just because a church teaches one thing, it does not mean that all of its members believe it. One example in this room uh, is, uh, for example, one of the doctrines of the Presbyterian Church includes the teaching or the principle uh, that babies and children of believing parents uh, ought to be baptised. That's what I teach. But it's not what everyone here believes. Just because you belong to a Presbyterian church doesn't mean you need to sign up to that teaching. You might believe differently. And that's cool. We've dealt with that, I hope. Uh, we're just not all the same. Uh, but it's also important, th- this idea that teachings don't necessarily match with beliefs uh, I've, is really practically important when it comes to uh, engaging with people from other faith backgrounds uh, or other viewpoints in the world. So, you might have heard things in talking to a friend about what their religion believes or teaches, but that doesn't mean that that is what your friend believes. If you're trying to share the gospel of Christianity with a friend, don't critique their religion without having first asked them what they believe themselves as a person. Uh, You might even know quite a bit about that person's religion, the one they sign up to or subscribe to. You might even know more than them about their own religion and the teachings from the top down. But it does not mean that everything their church teaches is believed or practised by themselves. For example, ask your Catholic friends about their approach to contraception. And I suspect you will find many of them don't align with their Pope on that one. I suspect. I haven't done the experiment. Maybe you shouldn't do that experiment. But, I, you know, I've got a hunch. So I'm going to offer this definition of Christian doctrine, that it is the authoritative, often codified teachings, truths, principles, etc. of God in the Bible. Authoritative, I say, because it usually comes with the weight of consensus. Uh, By consensus, I don't mean unanimous agreement or undisputed, uh, but that most people within Christianity who read the Bible with knowledge and faith will agree that the things it teaches plainly are just plain true and that what it teaches by implication can also normally be pretty reliably figured out. Um, And so by authoritative, I don't necessarily mean from a a pope or other figure down. Uh, There's sort of this consensus sort of approach. Um, Often codified. What I mean by that, uh, their doctrines or statements may be spelled out in a statement of faith that, uh, that their own denomination or church or whatever might use. So Presbyterian churches, for example, if you're new to all this, uh, we have a statement, a doctrine called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can Google it. It's quite long uh, and it's got old-timey language in it. Uh, But 
it's worthwhile a read. The Anglican Church uses a document that they call the 39 Articles. Most of your other Christian denominations will have, you know, a similar feeling sort of document lying around somewhere. Scholars have written books on doctrine. Often they'll call it a systematic theology. Systematic means, you know, like this orderly, you know, questioning and answering of, you know, what's the Bible's teaching on a topic. The creeds like the Apostles' Creed uh, and other creeds that we sometimes say together, uh, these are an example of it being codified, written down, structured. So, for example, the Apostles' Creed, uh, if you don't know it by name, perhaps you've heard it said, I believe in God, Almighty, uh, God, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son, etc., etc., etc. And all of this, by way of definition, I ground in the Bible. Uh, we're speaking about the Christian church, it's really important uh, that the Bible is the source. And by the way, this isn't me being clever, Uh, every one I've listed of the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Apostles' Creed or the 39 Articles or whatever else, uh, all the authors of those two were grounding their statements uh, in the Bible. Happy to have uh, at some level, you know, um, uh, and to varying degrees, individual statements disagreed with, uh, but... Uh, but by and large, trying to point people to the one final authority, the absolute authority, which is Scripture alone. What is doctrine's place? Definitions are fun, aren't they? What is its place? What's it all for? Well, ask Paul the question. What's the proper place of doctrine or, for one of, you know, his choice of word, teaching? How much does it matter And Paul will waste no time in telling you that sound, true, faithful teaching of the Scriptures is the first duty, the first duty of the church to its people and as a witness to the world. Good teaching comes first. That's certainly what he says to Timothy. uh, And you you can trace Paul's thought throughout his other letters and, and he would say that to anyone else who cares to ask him as well. It's the very first thing he says in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, as usual, like we're dancing around a little bit, so it's helpful to have your Bible open in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 3, this is what he says, I urged you, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's coming, in this context, he's coming at it from the negative. There's, there's, there's weird doctrines being splashed around and he's saying, cut it out, give them the true stuff. Get in arguments if you need to, but sound, solid, truthful doctrine and teaching is your first business and it's, the business, and it's your second business and third business, the thing that you're going to have to revisit uh, and do diligently and with perseverance again and again. Just to show again that the place of doctrine and teaching for Paul is number one. Uh, when he talks about electing elders for the church, further down in chapter 3, he lists a whole lot of character requirements. This is how, a, how an elder should look, how he should, ought to behave, uh, what sort of fruit you should expect from his life. And, and yet he gives just one skill requirement from the elder. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says he must be able to teach. It's, it's an important sort of outflow of, of this man's life of character. Now, when Paul describes the church as the household of God in chapter 3, verse 15, he calls it then uh, the household uh, of, of the living God. The church is a pillar and buttress of 
the truth. Truthful, faithful teaching and revision needs to be at the centre of what we do. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says again, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And that word teaching is the doctrine word that I told you about before. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's the doctrine word again. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation is at stake. Salvation is at stake if we get this wrong. People must be taught the truth if they are to believe the truth and hold on to it and be saved by the truth. To skip even just a little bit further, because this is a statement that, uh, that is just so uh, succinct and clear. So, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word, persist in it patiently. Teaching of doctrine, scriptural truths is of utmost uh, importance. Uh, on the weekend of the church camp, uh, I had a conversation about church membership with a handful of people who were interested. Uh, and I gave my, this is Rod's, hot take, how to choose a church. Uh, I'll share it with all of you because odds are nearly everyone here is at some point, hopefully you've chosen this church, um, but at some point you're going to be somewhere else and you're going to have to choose another one. So, so three points I'll offer you in how to choose a church. Number one, do it quickly. Number two, look for what's there. And number three, look for what's missing. Uh, and, and I'll summarise that. The, the reason I'm bringing this up is the second one, look for what's there. Uh, but I'll get to that. Do it quickly is number one if you're choosing a church. Don't check every church. You don't need to. Being in church is more important for your faith than being in the perfect church. Don't waste time. Pick a church quick. Do it quick. Number two, look for what's there. And, and this is tying into what I'm talking about now. Usually the first things people notice are the ages of the other people in the church and what the music is like in the church. Those are, those are the things that people are looking for in a church. And they're the first things that will strike your eyeballs uh, or your ears as you get there. That's what's there and that's how people judge whether it's a church that they can attend. That is not, however, what I mean by looking for what's there. Really, all I mean is the teaching. Have a look at where they place the Bible in, in terms of worship and priority. Do they teach the Bible as the authoritative, life-giving word of God? If that's there, you've fulfilled number one. You've found your church really quick. That's good enough, really. You've fulfilled step one. If that is not there, get out of there and quickly move on to another church. Uh, Just for completion's sake, although this isn't necessarily in theme with the subject, uh, when I say look for what's missing, so do it quickly, look for what's there and look for what's missing... What I really mean with look for what's missing is look for what you can contribute. Um, so it, it's not about, uh, you know, making your judgments, oh, that church wasn't good, as, you know, good enough at this or that or this or that. But if you find yourself 
making those statements then think, well, if it's not good enough at this or that, I wonder if there's some way I can contribute to this or that or this or that. Most churches that are lacking aren't happy about their own lack. They're not, they're not lacking deliberately. Uh, they, they would love to have you serve and support uh, the church and their community. But in the middle of that, look for what's there. Uh, look for uh, a church that is teaching the Bible. That is number one, absolutely crucial. Doctrine's purpose, point number three up here. Super important principle, because if the purpose of teaching is only to fill a head, uh, then it ticks all the negative boxes that uh, we thought about at the start. Uh, It's not obviously practical and it's not remotely relational. So you might be relieved to hear that that's not the main purpose of doctrine. Doctrine is not about filling a head or getting clever or passing a test. That is not what it is. In this letter to Timothy, Paul says uh, there are two vital purposes that all good teaching is driving towards. There's at least two, uh, two that come out uh, really loudly in Paul's teaching here. So I'm going to summarise just those two. The purpose of doctrine is love and salvation. Love. Love is obviously both practical and relational, isn't it? it? As a guiding principle, it tells you how to live And it's relational, you know, it feels warm and positive and meaningful, authentic. Here's what Paul says when he first brings up the importance of getting teaching right in chapter 1. He says from verse 3, he says, I paraphrase, um, I urge you to remain at Ephesus so that you might correct false doctrine, as in teach good doctrine. And then in verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Have a think about whether you agree with this statement. You can have truth without love, but you can't have love without truth. You can have truth without love, but you can't have love without truth. I made that up, or maybe I heard it somewhere before, I don't know. So, you know, feel free to argue with it. Um, But you can't have truth without love, you can't have love without truth. You can have truth without love. So I can stand in front of you and pick out every physical flaw I can see. I can make comment on your weight, your musculature, your skin, your teeth, your hair. I could then move on to your personality and comment on your people skills or judge your sense of humour. I could graduate to your character and pick out all your flaws... And I might say only precisely true things, but that would not equal love, would it? That would be be cruel. The opposite of love. In in most contexts, that's vicious and hateful. Now, I said you're allowed to argue with my own statement. Allow me to argue with my own statement. Sure, that's technically truth without love, but is it really truth if it's only cherry-picked truth? Because it's not the whole truth, is it? Uh, it's not the whole truth to only talk about flaws. So then, is that even truly truth? I don't know. I think that would be an excellent argument against my own statement. But I challenge you to argue with the second half of the statement. You cannot have love without truth. You can't have love without truth. If the foundation of a relationship is deception, that's not love. It cannot be. And Paul says in verse 3 that you must correct false doctrine with true doctrine. And in verse 5, he says these words, the aim of our charge in all of this is love. What does Paul mean when he says the aim of our charge is love? 
I think there's two possibilities. He could be saying it is love that compels us to teach truth. Or he could be saying that the aim of good teaching and doctrine is to produce love as a character outflow of those who believe it. Do you understand the difference? It could be that uh, our love, my love for you, for example, let's say I'm Timothy, you're the church, my love for you compels me to correct falsehood and, and teach truth. Uh, the aim of the charge is love. Or it could be uh, that uh, the aim of the truth that I teach is to produce in you love as a, as a character, fruit and overflow. You can make good points for both. In the first instance, Paul might be saying to Timothy, don't be frightened to disagree with people on matters of supreme importance. Because if you don't correct important errors, then you fail to love both the powerful people who are teaching the errors and you fail to love the many people who are getting caught up in the error and following them. And this is really important stuff to drum into people uh, like you and I uh, who don't really like being in disagreements. Disagreement can feel confrontational. It it can feel like anything but the warm fuzzies that you'd normally want to associate with something like love. So, you know, let's pretend for a moment, we don't know for sure, but but let's say say Timothy is one of these soft-hearted, you know, guys who, who, who wants to have good feelings with the people he's ministering to. Paul could well be reassuring Timothy, Timothy, mate, it's not unloving to disagree. Your sincere love that you have for these people should in fact compel you to correct important errors because you cannot have true love without truth. But the second possibility I said uh, for understanding this statement that the aim of our charge is love could be that the purpose of teaching doctrine is to produce the fruit of love in the lives of those who would receive it. It's also an excellent point. Because time and time again in Timothy, we will see that doctrine that is pure is impossible to separate from character. Impossible. In one sense, uh, what a doctrine produces in a person is kind of a litmus test for whether a doctrine can possibly be true or not. Does believing this thing produce love or hate? If hate, then it's probably poisoned with untruth. If, if it produces something other than love, then it probably doesn't accord with the teachings of Christ who summarised all the law and the prophets into two ethical commands, which are actually one, if you boil it down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. If you are teaching a doctrine that steers in the opposite direction of either of those, then it cannot be true doctrine. It does not accord with love. Friends, please be assured uh, that learning the Bible properly is never a purely intellectual exercise. I will say learning it properly, but learning it properly is never a purely intellectual exercise. It is intensely productive. Filling your head and heart with more of the God of love, uh, who loved you and gave himself for you and who commands you forcefully by the way to do the same with your own life to love others filling your head and heart with more of that god can only be good for you and good for those around you and good for the community and the world that that we occupy oh, it's too big a one to skip but i'm just going to for time salvation 
We'll have to come to this next week. It's the other purpose. Doctrine's practice. Just to wrap up, how do we do doctrine right? Again, I feel another whole message coming on here, um, but I'll say two things to finish. First, uh, our main practice in doing doctrine, our main practice here at Emerald Presbyterian Church uh, is uh, Sunday reading and preaching from the Bible. Instead of coming to the Bible with our questions, we start with the Bible's answers and try to derive what eternal things God might be teaching us. That's why we do it from books of the Bible, not from subjects that I invented. Books of the Bible that, try, uh, that we try not to leave bits out as God sets the agenda uh, for what we must know, for what is useful and profitable for us. The second thing... So the first thing in doing doctrine is, is, is reading and preaching from God's Word, letting it set the agenda. The second thing, very secondary... And this is a thing that I don't think we do often enough, and it's weirdly controversial. Rote. Rote learning. Do you know what rote is? That mechanical sort of memory work of being able to recite lines. And I, rote learning, um, look, I think the error of the past may have been too much rote, but I think the error of the present is too little. If we don't learn scripts and lines and helpful phrases that can come back to us in our minds and in moments of need and vulnerability, then we lose. I'll give you an example. Uh, I said before, there is pastoral payoff, genuine life-giving payoff to learning by rote. So my example is this, Stella, the 101-year-old lady who just passed away. Uh, I've been visiting her, it's about nine or ten months. One day before I was going to visit her, I was talking to Natalie, my wife, and I said, it's really hard to know what to say to Stella sometimes. She was getting weaker, she was very sharp, um, but conversation was getting more difficult for her to sustain. Uh, And Natalie said to me, "Uh, you should sing to her. And I said almost nothing to Natalie, um, because all I could feel was that is a terrible idea and an excellent idea. Uh, I drove to visit Stella that day and I was arguing with myself in the car. Rod, you can't sing to her, you can't sing. Uh, it'll be embarrassing, you, you can't even find pictures. You know, you'll bottom out, you'll, it'll sound terrible. People will hear you as they walk past, you can't do it. But it's such a good idea, such a good idea. God, give me courage. (laughs) Um, You know, as if you need to impress a lady who's 101 years old. So I sat down with Stella and um, took a deep breath and I said, Stella, are there any favourite songs that you have? And she couldn't actually name one. Um, I said, well, you know, um, I've got in front of me the words of the 23rd Psalm that you can sing. uh, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, And she didn't seem to recognise it until I started singing it. And she sang along with me. She knew the words. They got less in subsequent verses, but it was in there for her. Now, here is a lady who had spent most of her last years completely blind, couldn't read the Bible for herself, um, was always holding one when I walked in, but couldn't read it. But she she couldn't remember the name of the song, but she could remember the words. They were still with her. Friends, I don't know what the end of your days are going to be like, or mine, but wouldn't it be precious if you reach a point where you no longer have the faculty or the physical ability to, uh, to feed yourself 
or to get to church or anything like that, but you still have in your mind things that are just there mechanically. Gosh, you know, we think as young people that if it's mechanical, then it doesn't mean anything. I don't think Stella thought that. It meant something to her. There is pastoral payoff. It's why, this isn't very Presbyterian, by the way, or at least it's not very modern Presbyterian. Uh, most Presbyterian churches won't read the Lord's Prayer every week. I do because I believe in it. Right? I, I, I think this rote thing has payoff. I challenge you in the last years of your life to go, gee, I wish we didn't do the Lord's Prayer every Sunday uh, because those words are, are rich and that it was commanded to pray it and to remember it. Uh, but also th- this rote thing... It is the Bible norm. I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. It's what they did. Twice in this letter to Timothy, Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. What do you think he means by that? Learn the saying. Say it again. It's a saying. So you say it. You learn the words. One of them is this. He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. What a great saying to be reminded of God's great love and and how we ought to feel before him. The New Testament is littered with sayings that have the appearance of being uh, scripted creeds or hymns of the early church. And so I want to introduce, just in closing, I'm going to introduce you to one of them in 1 Timothy that we're going to repeat together right now uh, and in closing every week for the rest of the term. The mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll, I'll just introduce it to you first. Um, it says this, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This, I, I'm pretty convinced and, and most scholars will agree, uh, this is a creedal statement that was learnt by the early church. You can see the way it's written. It, it, it reads like poetry. It doesn't rhyme. But, you know, it, what's interesting is, is how do you split the... How do these phrases go together? I, I just think it's an interesting thing to think about. Is it split like this? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Can you see even the poetry in this upward, downward motion? Or is it more like this? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and he's proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Uh, this, you know, revelation and approval of who Christ is, and then the salvation and the joy uh, that has followed in his wake. I don't know which way to split it. I'm leaning towards this one. But either way... It's majestic, isn't it? It's just beautiful words. So we're going to say them together. Let's do it now. I'll lead in with the first bit and you'll chime in for the bits in bold. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your love, which is the truth. Uh, We pray that you will help us to be uh, good and faithful students of your truth, your teaching. Uh, Help me and the elders uh, to be uh, stewards 
of your truth as we uh, as we share it and proclaim it and and order this community around it. And we pray that um, you will produce in us what the truth is designed to produce in us: salvation and love for one another. And we pray all this uh, humbly in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.